Chapter 13 Bringing Hospitality into the World We usually associate hospitality with a culture, a social practice, or more personal quality to be admired. In Western culture, where individualism and security seem to be priorities, we need to be more thoughtful about how to bring the welcoming of strangers into our daily way of being together. The six conversations have power when they occur in a context of hospitality. Here are the design elements for structuring hospitality into our gatherings. Welcome and greeting. Everything counts. We take our cues from the hospitality industry, especially from good restaurants and hotels. Greet people at the door, welcome them personally, and help them get seated. Introduce them to some people whom they do not know. People enter in isolation. Reduce the isolation they came with. Let them know they came to the right place and are not alone. Example, Carlsbad, California. When Ray Patchett, city manager of Carlsbad, California, decided to involve the community in determining its future, he and his staff placed a red carpet from the street to the front door of the meeting place. They had people at the door to welcome people and escort them to the meeting room. In the meeting room, each citizen was personally introduced to other citizens. A local group was playing music. Light food was offered. Photos taken by children were on the wall. Get the picture? When you came to this meeting, you knew you had come to the right place. Of course, this took some time and effort on the part of the city manager team. But what a message of care and inclusion for the citizens of Carlsbad. Restate the invitation. After the welcome, begin with a statement of why you are there. Declare the possibility that led to the invitation. Use everyday language and speak from the heart without PowerPoint presentations, slides, video, and so on. Use words and phrases that express choice, faith, willingness to act, commitment to persevere, and the fact that the leaders came to listen, not just to speak. Connection before content. Before dividing into the agenda, citizens need to be connected to one another. Whenever we enter a room, we do so with doubt and still attached to wherever we just came from. Connecting citizens to each other is not intended to be just an icebreaker, which is fun, yet does little to break the isolation or create community. Icebreakers will achieve contact, but not connection. Connection occurs when we speak of what matters about this moment. This is done most easily through questions. Surprise! Some examples of connection questions. What led you to accept the invitation? Why was it important for you to be here today? What is the price others paid for you to be here? If you could invite someone from your life, past or present, to sit beside you and support you in making this meeting successful, who would that be? Since connection occurs most easily in small face-to-face groupings, create circles of three or six. Request that people sit with those they know the least. This gives each person the freedom to be who they truly are and not who their colleagues think they should be. It also symbolizes the intent to have people move beyond the boundaries of their own history and alliance. 
certain groupings are better for learning and connection. Others are better for closure and problem solving. Use a diverse mix of people, people who know each other the least, early in the gathering. This maximum mix is good for opening questions and raising doubts. Use affinity groupings, composed of those who are most familiar with each other, for planning actions and making promises. One structural sequence for creating community is to start with the individuals reflecting on the question and then have them talk in trios, next in groups of six, and then to the whole community. Shorthand is one, three, six, all. If you are short on time, groups of three are ideal. No place to hide in a threesome. Late arrivals. Someone always comes late, especially in community work. This does not mean we do not start on time, but the fact that a person showed up needs to be acknowledged. Welcome them without humiliation and connect them with the group. Restored community is created when every gathering is a demonstration of the future we came to create, so we need to take a moment to include those who come late. This is a defining feature of a culture of hospitality, and taking the time to welcome a latecomer sets the tone for what we consider to be important, which is relatedness. Early departure. When a participant leaves early, there is a hole and a kind of emptiness left behind. The early exit leaves a void in the community. It hurts the community. There is a cost, a consequence to the community. This takes energy and resources from the gathering and represents a cost to the experience of community and belonging. People will leave early, usually for good reason. So no need to take it personally, but good reason to take this seriously. Loss is an element of engagement. The way we treat the loss of a member is as important as the way we treat the welcome and the conclusion of the gathering. Here is a way to handle early departures that reflects that spirit. Ask in the beginning for people to give notice of leaving. Ask them to leave in public, not to sneak out in the dark of night or in silence or during a break. Acknowledge their leaving in a deliberate way. Have them announce to the group that they are leaving and where they are going. This will create some discomfort, but that is the nature of separation. When they get up to leave, have three people from the group say, here's what you've given us. This is a moment for the gifts conversation. Ask the soon-to-be departed, what are you taking with you? What shifted for you became clear? What value have you received as a result of being here? Is there anything else you'd like to say to the community? Thank them for coming. Remove their chairs. If the chairs remain empty, we are only reminded of our loss. All of this takes time, but we are choosing depth over speed. Plus, how we treat these people today is how we will be treated tomorrow. Breaking bread together. In creating the conversation and social space that support community, we need to address another dimension of welcome one that has traditionally defined culture, food. It brings the sacred into the room. It is the symbol of hospitality. Providing food is as direct as we can be in performing a life-giving act. When we take it seriously, we know how to do this right. What is needed is consciousness about having food and about what kind of food fits our intention. One small request. 
Most food served in meetings is about satiation, not health. Even in healthcare settings or meetings about creating healthy communities, we serve pastries, cookies, fast food, chips, pretzels. This is not food. It is fuel and habit that are nutritionally and environmentally unconscious. Let there be apples so that we have some way of moving beyond the illusion of paradise. Grapes for the sake of pleasure. Bread, unleavened if you can find it. A reminder of the Sabbath. You get the point. Natural, healthy food prepared by local merchants. Food that reflects the diversity of the world we are embracing. Grown within 50 miles of our gathering place to reduce the carbon footprint. Some people will complain. Let them. Chapter 14. Designing Physical Space That Supports Community Physical space is more decisive in creating community than we realize. Most meeting spaces are designed for control, negotiation, and persuasion. Although the room itself is not going to change, we always have a choice about how we rearrange and occupy whatever room we are handed. Community is built when we sit in circles, when there are windows and the walls have signs of life, when every voice can be equally heard and amplified, when we are all on one level and the chairs have wheels and swivel. When we have an opportunity to design new space, the same communal consciousness applies. We need reception areas that tell us we are in the right place and are welcome. Hallways wide enough for intimate seating and casual contact. Eating spaces that refresh us and encourage relatedness. Rooms designed with nature, art, conviviality, and citizen-to-citizen -citizen interaction in mind. And we need large community spaces that have those qualities of great communal intimacy. Finally, the design process itself needs to be an example of the future we are intending to create. The material and built world is a reflection of the connectedness, openness, and curiosity of the group gathered to design the space. Authentic citizen engagement is as important as design expertise. The discussion to this point has been about creating a new communal conversation by redesigning the social space within which we gather. There is one more aspect of conversation that is important to creating the experience of community and belonging. This is to be intentional about how we design and occupy physical space. The physical space. The room has importance beyond its functionality. Every room we occupy serves as a metaphor for the larger community that we want to create. This is true socially and also physically. The room is the visible expression of today's version of community, or lack of it. The room we are in, and how we choose to occupy it, is what we have to work with in the present moment. If the future we desire does not exist in this room, today, then it will never occur tomorrow. This is what is meant by change the room, change the culture. Meeting rooms are traditionally designed for efficiency, control, and business as we know it. Conference rooms have long rectangular tables, basically designed for negotiation, one side facing the other. The effect is that you can only see those on the other side. You sit blind to those on your own side of the table. So here we are, gathering to build community, accountability, 
and relatedness, yet unable to make eye contact with half the people in the room. The ends of the table are VIP positions. We all know this and avoid these seats. They are most often occupied last. In a restaurant, the person at the end of the table usually ends up paying the bill, so who wants to sit there by choice? This is also the typical design for boardrooms, which are all about prestige, privilege, and control. Auditoriums are designed for citizens to passively receive what others have produced. They are great for presentation and performance, which leaves the audience with their backs turned to each other, all eyes facing front. Classrooms are mostly designed for instruction. The usual layout says there will be one expert who knows 10 to 300 students who are there to absorb what the expert knows. Structured for teaching, not learning. This arrangement gives little recognition to the importance of peer-to-peer -peer learning. Sometimes we see the hollow square or U-shaped arrangement of tables and chairs. Same problem. Each person loses sight of one-third to one-quarter of the people in the room, and those we can see are on the other side of a moat of empty space. Reception areas are mostly designed for security. The message is that you have to demonstrate your right to enter this building. Hardly the welcome that encourages belonging. If you want to see a reception area designed for welcoming and hospitality, visit a nice hotel, a bar, or a good restaurant. The best business reception area I have seen is at Live Person, a tech company for which I have great affection. You walk in the door, and you are in a kitchen and eating area. The kitchen is the traditional center of warmth and relationship in any house or institution. Placing it right up front says, welcome, you belong here. Have some fruit or snacks. Brilliant. Hallways are designed for transportation. There are a growing number of community-conscious buildings that create hallways as city streets, places where casual contact is valued. The rooms you pass have internal windows like storefronts, and the hallway is wide enough for sitting areas, all created to bring life to our experience. Cafeterias are often designed as efficient refueling stations. The concern seems to be how many people we can feed and how quickly. Chairs, tables, walls, and food stations are set up for efficiency, easy maintenance. Don't linger. Please get back to work. As if sitting and being with other employees is not work, there was a time when there were executive dining rooms and employee dining rooms. There may be reasons for the separation by rank and status, though none come to mind at the moment. Where these still exist, the resolution is to decorate the employee eating area as nicely as the space for executives. Bring the room to life and life to the room. Although we may not have control over the form and shape of the room, we always have choices about how to occupy the room. The task is to rearrange the room to meet our intention to build relatedness, accountability, and commitment. This puts the convener in the role of interior designer. I spend my life being neurotically fussy about what room to meet in and how to rearrange it once I get there. This is embarrassing and awkward, earns me weird looks, and receives irrational refusals and sometimes I just get tired of lugging chairs around the room.
But this is work that has to be done in a world not designed for human interaction. The room needs to express the quality of aliveness and belonging that we wish for the community. Here is what this entails. Arrange the room as the shape of things to come. The circle is the geometric symbol for community, and therefore arranging the room. No tables if possible. If tables are a given, then choose round ones, the shape of communion, which are better than rectangles, the shape of negotiation, or classroom-style tables, the shape of instruction. If tables are a given, find the smallest ones you can. The ideal seating for a small group is a circle of chairs with no table. Put the chairs as close together as possible, which forces people to lean in to one another. People will complain that they have no place to put their laptop or water. They have laps and the floor. The circle with no table instantly and visually communicates to citizens or employees that dialogue and relationship with each other are as important as any content to be covered. Pick a room with a view. A room without windows blocks out the larger world that we are attempting to care for. A room with no windows carries the message that the larger world does not, for this moment, exist. It isolates us from that larger world and gives permission to be focused narrowly on the smaller world within the boundaries of our own interests. It makes the neighborhood, the city, and the globe invisible. It also keeps the energy produced by our gathering trapped in too small a space. There is no exchange of energy between our work and the world when we are trapped in a box. Welcome nature into the room. Gather near a window if there is one. Open the curtains, pull up the shades or blinds. If there is too much light to see the PowerPoint presentation, so be it. Perhaps there is a message in this. Bring in plants, even if they are artificial. As my friend Alan Cohen says, artificial plants are real. They are real plastic. The walls and furnishings of most of our meeting places are dead. The spaces are designed in the name of modernity, efficiency, and low maintenance. We do not have to passively acquiesce to this. Even one candle or one flower in the room changes everything. They completely understand this in India. Amplify the whole room. All voices need to be heard equally, and we have the technology to amplify a whole room. Look at a concert hall if you doubt this. As mentioned earlier, never have one microphone on a stand that people must line up to use. This breeds citizen speeches, gives too much power to the extremes, and reinforces the power imbalance between leader, expert, and follower. Having three handheld mics that can move around the room works much better. Example, conservation commissioner. I met a conservation commissioner in Colorado who was constantly arbitrating disputes between ranchers, farmers, environmentalists, loggers, and all who care about open spaces. He decided to buy a van and amplification equipment so that wherever in the state he went, he could mic the room. All could speak without walking up to a podium or lectern, and all could be heard equally. He said that as soon as he made this investment, the tone of the conversations shifted. The differences did not go away, but the contentiousness of the debate subsided, and civility and respect increased.
Choose chairs that swivel and have wheels and low backs. A chair is not just for support. It is also a means of mobility and transportation. Most meeting room chairs are designed for straight lines and stability. If you place them in circles and move too much, they get nervous and unhappy. If designed well, a chair can encourage movement from one small group to another. It can facilitate moving our attention back and forth from our small group to the larger forum. A movable chair is a metaphor for the ability to move back and forth from the concern for local tribal integrity and the needs of the whole. A swivel chair tells us that we must keep rotating to take in all that is around us so that what we create in our own unit or neighborhood occurs in the context of a larger world. Wheels allow us to move among small groups easily. If there are wheels on the chair, they ask to be used and serve to convince us that we are at every moment connected and willing to travel to all else that is happening in the room. Level the playing field. Rooms in public buildings, presumably designed for civic dialogue, often have a stage or raised platform. A platform or stage creates a demand for performance and judgment. It looks like the throne of the monarch, the bench of the judge. This is not the arrangement for democracy or community. Granted, watching a stage together gives us a common experience, but it does not connect citizens to each other. When we watch the stage together, we have once again turned our backs on each other. This obliterates the circle, the traditional shape of community. The raised platform, besides underlining the superiority of a few raised higher than the heads of many others, distorts the need for dialogue by encouraging questions and answers. It's as if citizens can show up only with questions, and the leaders will be the ones with the answers. Question and answer sessions are patriarchy's answer to interaction. Most city councils operate from raised platforms that isolate elected officials from citizens. Those platforms are effective in establishing the authority of the leaders and good for creating order. They are weak in creating a structure in which the leaders themselves are physically set up to work well together. Plus, the leader who would declare to citizens, we want your input, and do this while looking down on them from behind a big table, sitting on a plush chair, speaking into his own microphone, makes the intention impossible to implement. In these situations, the leader is as imprisoned by the structure as the citizen. Even in the theater, which is traditionally all about performance, there are structures designed to reduce the social and emotional distance between actor and audience. Theaters in the round put the stage in the center of the space so that the audience becomes a participant in the drama. Bring in art and the aesthetic. This is a larger conversation that can be dealt with here, but here is the gist of it. There can be no transformation without art. Art in the form of theater, poetry, music, dance, literature, painting, and sculpture. Communities by and large know this and invest heavily in the arts. Those who want to heal the wounds of a fragmented community initiate hundreds of art projects for those living on the margin. Art brings these voices into the mainstream. Most communities are proud of their art's tradition, and rightly so. If this is true for our larger communities, 
then it must be present each time we gather. Why would we assemble without a moment of silence, a song, a recitation? We often have this consciousness in education, workshops, and conferences. This sensibility should not be sequestered into those special occasions, but be a part of our daily life. If every gathering is an occasion for producing for ourselves a future we want to inhabit, then we need to design it for that intention, and we need art to accomplish this. If it is a large gathering, invite a local band or choir or dance troupe to welcome people into the session. Each time you break and reconvene, create some form of art or inspiration to mark the transition. Read a poem or take a moment to create a poem. Write in a journal. Breathe together. This is all very doable with little cost or preparation. Every group of 20 people has someone who would be willing to sing a song, recite a poem, or tell a story. All we need to do is make the request at the beginning of the gathering, and as people come to trust each other, someone will offer their gift of song, poem, or story to the community. When this happens, the tone in the room shifts, and the place becomes a little more sacred. Put life on the wall. There is nothing as lonely as an empty wall. Our halls and meeting spaces are filled with empty walls. Interestingly, this is not true of executive offices or spaces designed for sales presentations. Great attention is paid to making these places warm and welcoming. Art collections adorn the walls. Seating is comfortable and windows are softened with fabric. Granted, this decoration serves as a sign of privilege and importance, but it is a good thing. Why not extend this symbolism to those spaces where citizens and employees gather? An empty wall is a testimony to the insignificance of the human spirit, observed pioneering street life researcher William H. White. Our job is to affirm the significance of the human spirit, and filling the walls with photos and with art by citizens, youth, and employees is very doable. The library or art galleries in the community would be willing to curate public space. They do it frequently for restaurants and shops. It is not a question of cost. It is a question of consciousness. At the end of the day, we have to ask, how can we create aliveness when the wall sits sadly empty? Design and build opportunities. Every once in a while, there comes an opportunity to work with architects to design new spaces that support community. These are rare moments, unless you are an architect, when we can bring a communal consciousness to the construction of a new building or the rehabilitation of an old one. An elegant quote from Christopher Alexander in Book One of his Nature of Order series reminds us how rare and powerful these opportunities are to bring a new consciousness into the material world. Common sense tells us, or seems to tell us, that the physical environment affects our lives. It has often been said, certainly, that the shape of buildings affects our ability to live, our well-being, perhaps our behavior. Winston Churchill is believed to have said, we shape our buildings and they shape us, but how do they affect us? I shall argue that the geometry of the physical world, its space, has the most profound impact possible on human beings. 
It has impact on the most important of all human qualities, our inner freedom, or the sense of life each person has. It touches on internal freedom, freedom of the spirit. I shall argue that the right kind of physical environment, when it has living structure, nourishes freedom of the spirit in human beings. In the wrong kind, lacking living structure, freedom of the spirit can be destroyed or weakened. If I am right, this will suggest that the character of the physical world has impact on possibly the most precious attribute of human existence. It is precisely life, the living structure of the environment, which has this effect. Later, he summarizes by stating, in an environment which has living structure, each of us tends more easily to become alive. As mentioned earlier, the architecture of a building can support a community of belonging in the design of its walls, ceilings, hallways, reception areas, training and community rooms, eating spaces, meeting rooms, accommodations for food, breakout areas, and small gathering spaces. This does not even get into the design of workspaces, which I am not dealing with, as it is such well-covered territory. The distinction to be made here is between great design and modernist aesthetic design that is about modernity, newness, and placing an architectural and landscape footprint that produces a legacy, which is more about the architect than the neighborhood. These modernist places are usually indifferent or strictly utilitarian with respect to human habitation. Michael Friedman, an urban architect and planner, can show award-winning building designs that no one wants to inhabit and award-winning landscape designs that keep people from congregating and have no relationship to their neighborhood. This is a stunning reality. How could we design buildings and communal spaces that are not friendly to their inhabitants? Not so stunning, perhaps, when you realize that we design institutions, social structures, and gatherings that have the same effect. Here is the bigger point. The buildings and material forms that we create are an outgrowth of our social fabric and capacity to be in a community together. They have a powerful impact on our experience and relation to each other. Space matters. Alienated and retributive cultures will create alienated and unfriendly buildings and public spaces. Patriarchal institutions will create physical space that glorifies those who lead them and the designers they choose, and they will be indifferent, in the name of cost, to the space dedicated to workers and citizens. This means we must be thoughtful about the quality of relatedness that exists among those designing our spaces, the owner and the architect. If neither is intentional about space and the neighborhood or place where it is located, and if their first priority is preeminence and branding, then we will continue to have instrumental spaces. These are spaces where conflicts are unresolved, isolation is taken for granted, and style conquers substance. We do have evidence that there is a choice. Example, citizen-driven design. Here is an example of how the planning process can involve citizens and increase the chances that the built environment will be friendly to community and belonging. In the world of community planning and landscape design, Ken Cunningham and his partner, John Spencer, 
have created a design process very much in line with the thinking offered here. They know that the quality of a plan is not just in the rightness of its design. The quality and success of a plan also depend on there being an authentic expression of the voices of the citizens who will occupy that space. The essence of Ken and John's process is to invite citizens to walk around, observe, and imagine what the space might become. Every planning process claims to involve citizens and potential occupants, but in most cases, it is lip service, holding to the belief that experts, usually from out of town, hold the real key to great design. Ken and John treat citizens as producers of the design, rather than as consumers who react and respond to the decisions of community leadership groups and planning experts. The following are some elements of their thinking that fit well with the themes in this book. Ken and John work hard to get a cross-section of people, especially those citizens who are typically disengaged. They actively recruit those on the margin and make sure they are welcome. They want two kinds of people in the room, those who have a direct stake in the design, whom they name the internal community, and some outsiders, whom they call the external supportive community. This recognizes that the wider community has a stake in the quality of design for each property or neighborhood. It takes a region to raise a property. Before citizens get involved in the design, Ken and John have them get to know each other. They have them meet in small groups and engage in many of the conversations for a transforming community. In their groups, citizens talk about the crossroads facing this project. They discuss their doubts and reservations and they hold the gifts conversation and name the promises they are willing to make to ensure that this project succeeds. Ken and John then identify several critical places in the property or neighborhood where the design will determine the essential experience of those who will eventually occupy the space. They have citizens physically walk these spots and they have them ask themselves some interesting questions. When I look at this spot, what do I see? When I look, what do I know? When I look, what are my assumptions? When I look, what do I envision? These questions, asked early, evoke the imagination of those who will live with the design. This is different from creating designs or plans that express the imagination of the architect and developer. After the citizens have walked the physical spaces, Ken and John bring them together to post their answers to the questions. They are careful to record each comment exactly as spoken so that all ideas are held and documented. A primary goal is for citizens to recognize their contribution to the final plan. At each stage, Ken and John can point to the language and words that came from citizens. It is after the conversation with citizens that Ken and John do the traditional research and define the core elements and requirements facing the design. Citizens are then brought together again and presented with an organized version of their comments and the results of the research. In this meeting, Ken and John use some creative ways to sustain ownership and commitment. In small groups, they use a talking stick, which ensures that every person's voice is heard and prevents the more verbal people from dominating the conversation. They have designed a physical game in which people can explore and discover their choices. People place objects, buildings, 
benches, parks, and all the other design specifics on the board and then talk through the trade-offs in the design process. Experts usually do this. Here, citizens do it. When strong differences become obvious, they also handle conflict in a special way. They avoid the arbitrator role and instead use a fishbowl structure to resolve conflicts. They put those who disagree in the center of a group and have chairs for others to occupy so that their voices can be heard. This means that other citizens participate in conflict resolution instead of the usual approach of handing the issue to a professional. When people get stuck in their differences, Ken intervenes. He tells them and other citizens who are interested that they have 20 minutes to resolve the conflict. At the end of the time, Ken comes over with a pink pearl or a silver dagger. One of the two is placed on the design, depending on whether the citizens have been able to reach agreement. If they can agree, they get the pink pearl. If not, a silver dagger is placed on the design and the group moves on. He reports that this structure often achieves agreement, even when people have been at odds with each other for years. The simple but elegant device of Ken and John's game keeps citizens engaged and treats each design question as a challenge that the community has the capacity to resolve. It also moves differences from an abstract discussion of beliefs to concrete and certain terms on paper, which is cheap. The final step is to document what has been developed in a draft design, which is presented back to the citizens. They gather to review the design and experience the product of their efforts. This approach is such a radical and elegant expression of common sense. As you know, in the traditional planning process, experts do most of the work. Citizens are usually asked what they want in the design, and then the experts come up with a draft design that is presented to the citizens for feedback. The experts take the feedback back to their office and prepare a final design, which is then proposed to decision makers. There is little attention paid to creating more relatedness among stakeholders. There is no structure to have conflicts resolved by the advocates themselves. Making sure that citizens can identify where their own ideas show up in the design is left to chance. The real difference between what Ken and John do and what is traditionally done is really a contrast between the contexts out of which designers operate. Ken and John bring a context of valuing the gifts of citizens, understanding the importance of engagement, and appreciating the hospitality of physical space, all elements of restorative places. There is more than enough time and just enough money. A final comment on space. Cost and speed are always cited in the argument against great design, but the discussion about cost and speed is not really about cost and speed. It is part of an agenda which declares that human experience is a low priority. The argument against the importance of the aesthetic is an argument against human freedom. Low-cost and quickly constructed buildings and spaces become warehouses designed to keep under one roof and under control those people whom we do not value. We measure their value in dollars and efficiency. We have too often seen the construction of ugly spaces and buildings in the name of cost reduction or of saving taxpayers' dollars. It is not about the money. When a hollowed institution like a sports franchise or a large employer threatens to move out of town, 
We have all the money that is needed. Don't ever take at face value the argument about no funds and no time. Our stance about cost and speed is simply a measure of our commitment. In every case, low cost and fast action are really an argument against the dignity of citizens and against a more democratic and humanly inclusive process. As a final thought, I want to acknowledge that the struggle to find or adapt space to support citizens facing each other with no barriers in between is an unending quest. The most sophisticated designs, whether for offices, museums, or public buildings, still want rooms with long rectangular tables, or seats and pews nailed to the floor facing forward, or cameras and microphone taking precedence over eye contact. This struggle is also an internal one, as I wonder whether getting people out of the pews, out of the bolted-down seats, or away from the comfortable conference setup is worth the disruption. The wish to be approved of, or just to take the easier way, is endlessly appealing. The temptation to just let the world sit where they want and stay disconnected always raises the question of my own intention, my own commitment, my own resignation. Each time I yield to that temptation, it is always a mistake. Sorry. Chapter 15 The End of Unnecessary Suffering There is a future that I know to be possible. As is often said, you only teach what you need to learn. So it is my own desire for community, my own sense of isolation and unbelonging that have driven me into the work that has led to this book. Much of my life has been lived on the margin, outside of community. So I have firsthand familiarity with the toll it takes on a human being. This began so long ago that I have only a dim memory of its ever being any other way. Besides, any explanation I come up with would only be my story. Fiction, it is. Over the last 15 years, I have tiptoed cautiously, even reluctantly, toward fuller membership and belonging in the place where I reside, Cincinnati. The possibility that is working on me is the reconciliation of community. Reconciliation is, for me, the possibility of the end of unnecessary suffering. This is the context within which I show up, even though, as with us all, I sometimes don't know whether I am working for God or the devil. As I work to create the reconciliation and end to suffering that I am committed to, the extent of the pain running through our communities keeps commanding my attention. I want to make a distinction about this pain. It is the difference between human and political suffering. Human suffering is the pain that is inherent in being alive. Isolation, loneliness, illness, abandonment, loss of meaning, sadness, and finally, I think, death. These are unavoidable. They are going to happen to each of us. And try as we may, there is nothing we can do to prevent them. We have infinite choice in how to respond to this kind of human suffering. But it is part of the deal and is what gives vitality, meaning, and texture to a life. The other kind of pain is political suffering. This is avoidable and unnecessary suffering. Some of the avoidable suffering is very visible. Poverty, homelessness, 
hunger, violence, the diaspora of those unable to return to their homeland, a deteriorated housing project or a neighborhood in distress. There is also political suffering that is more subtle, people's learned dependency, internalized oppression, the absence of possibility, the powerlessness that breeds violence, imperialism, and a disregard for the worth of a human being. I am calling this political suffering because I believe it grows out of human choice. Human choice to sustain a world of imbalance, surplus on one side and great scarcity on the other. This is a political choice, but not political in an electoral sense. It is not politics as in conservative or liberal, left or right. I am referring to politics as the choices we make about the distribution of power and control, and the mindset that underlies those choices. After all the social scientists, historians, economists, biologists, authors, and experts from all disciplines have finished with their explanations, it seems that what I am calling political, avoidable suffering occurs as a result of our disconnectedness and the imbalance of power and resources that is such a dominant feature of our culture. This in no way puts blame on anyone or any segment of society. I do not believe that those people exist anywhere in the world. I have simply come to believe that when we are unrelated to those whose lives are so different from ours, suffering increases. When we see a growing distance between economic classes, an increase in protectionism and gatedness, and more resources coming into fewer hands, our capacity to value those exiled to the economic margin is reduced. This is not just about large societal movements. It is also about our growing dependence on experts, our attraction to celebrity and power, our increasing tendency to label and come up with new diagnostic categories in which to pour more services. All of this is rationalized in the name of cost control and greater expertise. These are what I consider the real politics of our lives. Where does choice reside? Who decides? And at what moment is the interest of the larger whole given voice? The political suffering will decrease as we collectively choose to be together in a way that creates a space for something new to occur. What is needed is for us to choose over and over to more widely distribute ownership and accountability. These choices will spring from the hands of citizens rather than the hands of experts, leaders, and system executives. These choices will arise when we value, invest in, and recognize the gifts and capacities of citizens. We have evidence that this is possible and that it works. If you are doubtful, Look at all the research on what constitutes a high-performing team. Examine the employee involvement and customer service movement of the 1980s and early 1990s and how it helped bring U.S. companies back from the edge of irrelevance. Look at the decentralized operation of the megachurches of today and the way the armed services have long been interested in empowerment and point-of-contact decision-making. In each of these efforts, Existing leadership took the initiative, and citizens and employees and members accepted their role in producing an alternative future. Therefore, consider how shifting our thinking and practice concerning the politics of experience 
could achieve reconciliation in several dimensions of community that are sources of so much grief. Youth. Youth are a unifying force in community. Hard to argue against the next generation. An alternative future opens when we shift our view of youth, say 14 to 24-year-olds, from problem to possibility, from deficiency to gift. When you drive by a street corner and see young people hanging out at odd hours, making a living in odd ways, you can view them as having gifts waiting to be given, rather than as being problems waiting to be solved. If you notice that they are dealing drugs, you hold the thought that they have entrepreneurial skill. It is just aimed in the wrong direction. If you are concerned that they are not in school, well, they are learning something, just not what we had in mind. Someone recently said that for youth who have dropped out of school and who have no support system around them, the street corner is the only classroom that welcomes them and is available to them. It has no entrance requirements and is open 24 hours a day. Is this way of thinking true? Not exactly, but it is useful because it puts us in a more forgiving stance. If we care about youth instead of trying to control and inculcate them, then we have to deal with our adultism. This means we have to change the nature of our listening. Create places and people that welcome youth, where youth see themselves reflected in those who have chosen to work with them. In a youth forum recently, 10 young men in their late teens were asked if they knew a white person they could trust. One raised his hand. They were asked how many owned guns. You know the answer. How many had had a friend killed in the last two years? All raised their hands. This reality most often leads to more conversations about programs on diversity, more action on weapons, or more vigilance. A new conversation would be to focus not on the suffering in their lives, but on getting to know who these young men are, much as the Hoxies and Sparrows did in Finley House, described in Chapter 8, to see them as gifts and capacities. These men, mostly, are entrepreneurial. They are leaders among their peers. They have a strong survival instinct. They are interesting and valuable human beings and have a hunger for this to be known about them. Let us just focus on that for a while and discover what emerges. Also, they are a reflection of the world we have helped create, so a conversation about our contribution to the plight of some of our youth would make a difference. This is not about guilt. It is about our accountability. Public safety. Sidewalk contacts are the small change from which the wealth of public life may grow. Jane Jacobs. The shift is to believe that citizens have the capacity to create a safe neighborhood. It is street life and connected neighbors that make a neighborhood safe. We think the police can keep us safe. In our concern for safety, we too often defer to the professionals. Police are not the answer. They are needed for crime. They cannot produce safety. There is in every neighborhood structures for citizens to volunteer. Citizens on patrol, neighborhood watch, safety meetings, educational pamphlets hung on people's front doors by the police. These go under the title of crime prevention. Not so. They are an organized assault on the outside. 
They are unkind to strangers hanging out in the neighborhood. Instead of making it possible for us to get to know who these human beings are, these structures embody the retributive mindset. The shift is to realize that safety occurs through neighborhood relatedness. The efforts that move in this direction focus on identifying neighborhood assets. On creating occasions for citizens to know each other through cleanup campaigns, block parties, and citizen activist movements to confront irresponsible landlords and abandoned houses and lots. Anything that helps neighbors know who lives on the street. Every neighborhood has certain connector people who know everyone else's goings-on. My street has Laura. She knows everyone. She is on the street all the time, walking dogs, caring for animals, regardless of their owner, and generally providing the glue for all of us. She is the de facto mayor of Bishop Street. We need ways to recognize these people and others. If we looked at the assets of the neighborhood, we would realize that youth are on the streets in the afternoon, and retired people and shut-ins have the time to watch what is going on. When we recognize the gifts of these people, safety will be produced. Development and the Local Economy one of the largest divides in our cities is between the developers and the social activists. The activists want to protect the residents from their invested neighborhoods. They want to make sure that lower-income residents are not pushed out of their homes or their way of life. The developer community wants more home ownership and a lively area to attract young professionals and cultural creatives, empty nesters, gays, and lifestyle enthusiasts. The future is named development by the media and gentrification by the activists. This puts the social activists and the developers at odds with each other. The argument needs reframing. In most places, either the situation remains at an impasse or the developers, with the help of local government and tax benefits from the federal government, carry the day. It is a polarized conversation with low trust and each side attached to its story. Developers bemoan the social services concentrated in poor neighborhoods. Activists know that without a strong voice, the poor will be sent to warehouses under the interstate highway. Reconciliation will occur through a new conversation in which the developers talk about the compassion they hold for those on the margin. The new conversation for the social activists is to acknowledge that without some wealth coming into their neighborhoods, they will continue to depopulate and deteriorate. The way into a different future is to build relatedness between these groups. Beneath their position is a common concern for the well-being of the city. A perpetually wounded city serves no one. There are many examples of these groups coming together. It is all possible when people decide to work something out rather than trying to win and be right. It is the shift in conversation and to care for the whole that make the difference. The other monster issue facing the country and community is the development of a local economy. Small businesses are the growth engine that is kind to community. Each neighborhood has a microeconomy that needs to be healthy, a place where people live, work, and shop. Most of the visible models are for well-off, resurgent neighborhoods. The emergent possibility is to create neighborhoods that are vital and friendly to the middle class. This is also the way out for those on the margin. For example, 
A strong local African-American economy does more to create racial justice than minority hiring regulations and diversity workshops. Jim Klingman, an active citizen of Cincinnati, has given voice to this issue for years. He calls it Blackonomics. Find his books and read them. He argues that the civil rights movement created political freedom for Blacks to live, vote, and shop according to their wants. But this occurred at the expense of the economic well-being of African-American small business owners. This becomes the new conversation. How to marry capital with all the educational opportunities for creating business plans and incubator agencies that are intended to expand the pool of entrepreneurs. The answer for those on the margin is to become economically self-sufficient, working at minimum wage service jobs or becoming acculturated to work for mainstream large businesses leaves too many people outside the living wage economy. One more point. We need to educate people about the politics of the dollar. When they shop at the big box stores, searching for the lowest cost, they do this at the expense of the community and local economy. For every dollar they save at the big boxes, they spend $1.50 in taxes high-interest loans for credit cards, overpriced staples at convenience stores, and get-me-through-the-night loan operations. Supporting small businesses, buying from those people who are a reflection of who you are, circulates money among businesses that will be ultimately sustaining. If we do not become conscious of the political and economic power of a single dollar, the class divide will only widen. Family Well-Being and Human Services In the human services world, we intend to approach families as whole systems. We talk about integrating service, but are so broken into disciplines and accreditations that it is mostly lip service. Even if we did organize services around the family, we are still deficiency-oriented. To fully explore this subject is beyond our purpose here, but a couple of headlines will make the point. The shift in framing is that people and families are a pool of gifts and capacities, not a series of needs and deficiencies. Their suffering is an effect of their isolation and their being labeled. The struggle in their life is to find a way to use their gifts. In the way we traditionally deliver service, by raising money for valuing their deficiencies, we reflect and reinforce the cause of some of their troubles. We still call citizens who seek help, cases. People who serve them are called case workers. What does it mean when someone is labeled a case? By naming people cases, lawyers, social workers, human service workers, in general, dehumanize those they are committed to serve. Human services also relate to citizens through diagnostic categories. We are interested only in their needs and deficiencies. We call people homeless, single mom, poor, ex-offender. If a family or person has no pressing needs and deficiencies, nothing that can be categorized, nothing that can be funded, we have no interest in that family or person. Perhaps we should develop diagnostic categories for people's gifts. Right now, we have only crude positive labels. High school graduate, economic status, size of family, job experience. Suppose we name people in categories, using terms such as connector, 
knows everyone in the neighborhood, street-level entrepreneur, fashion plate, compassion for those in need, lights up a room when they enter, creative speech, practical intelligence, risk-taker, cook. The shift is to focus on gifts and capacities. Again, McKnight has led the way in this thinking. Example, Cynthia Smith. Cynthia Smith was an assistant director of client services at the Hamilton County Department of Job and Family Services. They still service about 30,000 citizens through the front door per month. Cynthia decided to work at shifting the thinking of her division from the needs of people to the gifts of people. She got interested in something called appreciative inquiry, which is a way of helping institutions build a future on what is positive about their past and present. It is designed to use appreciation as a form of leadership and organization development. According to some, this is a radical path for human services. Cynthia also had the consciousness that the employees of Job and Family Services, JFS, reflect in their own lives the same struggles and heartaches of the general population that JFS is chartered to serve. This means that if we want to transform the context and thinking of those we are here to serve, then we must begin with ourselves. The internal culture of a human service system must value the gifts and capacities of its own employees before those employees can bring that mindset to the community. People inside systems need to operate with compassion and appreciation toward each other. How can we be hospitable to the community if we are not hospitable to each other? Another important step Cynthia took was to invite members of the community at large to be part of the internal conversations she initiated. She valued the capacity of the larger village to care for the success of JFS, an idea that is radical and healing in itself. Most government agencies think they have to defend and justify themselves to the community. Cynthia welcomed the community in to help create an alternative and more restorative future. She believes that it does take a village to raise a child and was acting on it. Now, since this happened a while ago, some may ask, did it work? Was it cost-effective? What evidence do we have about it? Wrong questions. It for sure created for a moment in time an alternative culture and world. Proof enough. Healthcare. Healthcare ranks high on centralized control, private sector domination, and dependency on expert intervention. We thought that mergers and restructuring healthcare would help. We moved to managed care and brought 60% of the physicians under that umbrella. We privatized with all the bottom-line efficiency that promised. We have invested heavily in research and dramatized the heroism of the professional. We market it on TV and billboards and with stories of the miracles of cure and science. Healthcare also ranks high on every dimension for the conventional wisdom about how transformation occurs. Strong leadership, noble vision, clear outcomes, predictable and regulated practices, tight measures, high-influence expertise, major investment in training. So how is it going? Not great. The United States spends 40% more on healthcare than the next highest-spending nation, Switzerland. Yet the average rank in quality of care and health of citizens in the United States 
doesn't quite make it into the top 10. What is paradoxical is that all who work in healthcare are committed, well-intentioned human beings. What is poignant is that most who work in the system, these committed, caring people, agree that the system is not working. Some call it broken. For anything fundamental to change, the context needs to change. The current context is a conversation about better management, cost control, and universal access, called affordable care. This conversation is about minor improvements, making what is not working cheaper and more available. These conversations will not create an alternative future. To oversimplify, we are asking the wrong questions. For example, the current conversation about controlling costs is not changing the nature of the system. A beginning conversation would be about who is responsible for our health. Another example, we have only begun to shift to a focus on health versus disease, slowly. The profession is very tentative about taking seriously non-chemical, non-surgical forms of healing, which the profession would name as non-expert intervention. In fact, any approach that focuses on anything other than system care, professional knowing, and chemical treatment is called alternative medicine, as if we would never turn to it first, only as an alternative. It is as if the conversation about prevention, widely available curatives, healthy eating, positive lifestyle habits, and ancient and traditional healing were not medicine, but a second cousin, as if we had to choose between alternatives. Pick one or the other. And if you want your insurance company to pay for you getting healthy, you know which one gets the nod. There are signs of a shift in context for healthcare. There is increasing evidence that if people are connected to their community and have people in their lives who care about their well-being, in other words, who experience a sense of belonging, they are healthier and live longer. These are encouraging indicators, although still outside the dominant conversation about the cost of professional services and who pays. Who is to say how this will eventually play out? As for every other big question, there are small, local solutions occurring. Wherever you are, you can find examples of the future that you might seek. Someone probably not too far away is changing the world, though you will never see it in the news. Here are two examples of a major change in context in the realm of healthcare. These are two stories of individuals taking a stand for a possibility. They have organized their practice as an example of a future and done so at significant personal cost with the belief that local action committed to over a long period of time is what changes the world. And they do this in an industry where most feel helpless about anything really changing not these two. Example, Paul Ulig. A thoracic heart surgeon named Paul Ulig is opening new possibilities for healthcare. In many ways, he is creating an alternative future for his calling. He has been very innovative in the realm of collaborative care and the value of collaborative rounds. Collaborative rounds, in Paul's practice, are times when the physician, nurse, social worker, and other support people working with a patient literally stand in a circle with the patient and his or her family and talk together about the patient's condition and path of action. 
This means that decisions will be based on more than just the progress of the disease. They will include the viewpoints of the whole team, patient and family included. This is in sharp contrast to the common practice of placing the decisions about care in the hands of the single expert, the physician, or team of experts. The idea that the patient, family, social workers, and nurses have a voice about care expressed in front of all others is a serious inversion of thinking, a shift from physician as the cause of care to the patient and care community. If you do not realize how radical this is, get thee to a hospital. Collaborative care has been around for some time and was not invented by Paul and his team, but they have moved it forward with their advocacy. They have accumulated hard evidence of the impact of this kind of collaborative care, with data on the improvement in patient safety, length of stay in the hospital, patient and family satisfaction, and professional satisfaction. With the collaborative methodology, all of these measures improve at little increase in cost. If a drug were developed that produced even half of the outcomes that this innovation has produced, it would be used in every system in the country. In the face of this, Paul has been treated by his industry as an interesting anomaly in the system. As a surgeon, he is near the top of the food chain. Still, wherever he goes, he both draws interest and catalyzes resistance. The problem is that Paul's innovation confronts the dominance of the expert model in the extreme, and it delivers no large profits to the institution. Paul believes that a community of care is what will make the difference in our health. Among his heart surgery patients, 95% will return to the lifestyle that broke their heart after the professional supports, which are very expensive, have disappeared. The 5% who do change their lives hold on to this commitment by working with others to do the same. What Paul is paying attention to gives an indication of the shift in conversation that might lead to real transformation in the healthcare industry. The new conversation he is initiating is one of ownership. What is our individual and community contribution to the problems we are facing? What commitment am I as a citizen willing to make toward my own health? What is the possibility of creating wellness in the world rather than fighting disease? What is the refusal I am willing to make to the expert and professional control of the conventional solutions? Collaborative Rounds is a means for creating a new conversation that places the doctor, the family, the supporting professionals, and the patient all at the center of the planning and decision-making process. Making these questions central would shift the nature of the healthcare debate. This conversation would change the context from disease to health, from romance with technology and drugs to actions on the part of the citizen, from discussions of cost control and dependence on the professional to engaging the community. Paul has finally written a book about his work. Read it and join his network. Example. Dorothy Schaefer. Here's one more example of how transformation happens small, quietly, in rooms designed for humans and based on relatedness. Dorothy Schaefer is a Cincinnati physician in internal medicine. I first noticed she was up to something before I met her. Most mornings, I took the kids to school, 
and drove through a neighborhood somewhat on the edge. I noticed on the corner of Redding and Clinton Springs the renovation of an old house that was taking forever. What were they doing there? Why was it taking so long? Strange neighborhood to make that kind of investment. Then I forgot about it. Two years later, I am shopping for a new physician. A friend recommends Dr. Schaefer, who I find out was the one who renovated that building I had been watching. When I go there, I realize she has taken the care to create a version of the possibility of healthcare. Here is a taste of the future on the corner of Redding and Clinton Springs. I call for an appointment, and a human being answers the phone. I ask for an appointment, and she apologizes that I will have to wait three weeks since I am a new patient. She asks why I want to see the doctor, tells me that if I become a patient, there will be an annual fee. I agree to this. This is to enable Dr. Schaefer to keep her patient low down to give the service she wants to give. For those who cannot afford the fee, she waives it or figures out what will be possible for that patient. I show up for my appointment and walk into a living room. It's like staying at a W hotel, where they redesigned the lobby as a living room. I go to the desk, and on the counter there are raisins, not candy, and not nothing. Brenda, the receptionist, who knows me when I call, gives me forms to complete, and when I am done, she says the doctor will be right with me. I sit down and see there are books with some intellectual content, poetry, the environment, non-traditional cures. I have to search hard for People and Time magazines, both of which are entertaining and content-free. There is no TV on the wall suggesting new treatments. In four minutes, I am escorted right away to the examining room. The nurse takes my vital signs and weighs me without my shoes on. Scale is a little inaccurate on the heavy side, but not to be picky. Doctor comes in without a clinical coat, dressed casually in street clothes. We talk. She does the exam, is not anxious about the time, is interested in my way of eating, my lifestyle, and the stress in my life. Takes a while. She knows about vitamin supplements and explains why some are better than others. She thinks part of her job is to educate me. She is more interested in the person than disease. Most of her focus is on keeping me healthy. Exercise and diet are major focuses for her. Everyone's body resists certain foods, and she suggests we find out about mine. Her office offers acupuncture, massage, and other healing arts, all in the same building. She has organized her service around the patient. I now have one physician who sees the whole picture, one place that treats the whole person. Dr. Schaefer has eliminated the distinction between conventional and alternative medicine. She has put the patient at the center of the service. She has transformed healthcare. If there are people like Paul Ulig and Dottie Schaefer in one community, then we know there are others like them in all communities. All we have to do is recognize them, support them, and declare them to be mainstream. I give these two examples for two reasons. First, because they embody the idea that communal transformation begins at a small scale, takes a long time, and does not require large funding or a driving concern for efficiency. 
This means that each of us can join in moving things forward. If we seek large-scale change, we will create it by aggregating a large number of very local efforts like these and finding a way, conceptually, to thread them together under an inclusive umbrella. When a myriad of small efforts to heal the planet got named and woven into an environmental movement, something more impactful was unleashed. Same with the civil rights movement. Decades of local struggles were finally ignited by a few people sitting at a lunch counter and a woman sitting at the front of a bus. The efforts to transform our communities will be ignited at some point into a movement and a larger commitment to create this world that works for all. It will likely occur when there is some event to bring together our efforts to, one, construct an alternative economy, two, bring the faith community out of the buildings and into the neighborhoods. Three, stem the tide of privatization and return to giving priority to the common good. And finally, four, declare, and really mean it, that businesses have a much larger purpose than profit. The second reason to end with the stories of collaborative care and a private medical practice is that the way they function demonstrates the shift in context that this book describes. They operate as if every player in the setting is a co-creator of outcomes. That each patient and patient's family are enough. That they have it within their means to produce health and that the professional service provider exists to support health, not capitalize on disease. Also, the way Paul and Dottie, Dr. Schaefer, have constructed their practice has been produced from the thinking that is embodied in the six conversations outlined in the second half of this book. To invent collaborative care, Paul had to choose possibility over problem solving. He had to create space for dissent and the expression of concerns from all parties. He had to broaden the question of commitment to include both the professionals and the patient and family. Similarly, Dottie created a space that is inviting and welcoming. She creates the possibility that the patient is truly at the center of the conversation. One example of this is in the decision to make the waiting time of the patient as important as the operational efficiency of the doctor. She also demands commitment on the part of the patient. That the patient pays an annual fee to be part of the practice asks for a unique level of commitment. It says that both parties are invested in the fortunes of the practice, as well as the fortunes of the patient. To avoid this being elitist, there are ample mechanisms for people with fewer economic resources to be members. Final point. Community and belonging are a combination of context and initiating a transforming conversation. Shifting our thinking about both the context and the conversation can occur in an instant. In both cases, it is a simple choice. Bringing changes in context and conversation into the world is more complicated. I hope that this book contributes in a small way to moving your efforts forward. In summary, The Social Architecture of Building Community Building community and belonging in a dominant culture that is based on individualism, competition, and autonomy is difficult work. This section is an attempt to make this easier. 
It is a quick summary and reference guide to the book. You are welcome to copy and use it at will. First comes the context and main ideas. Next is a summary of the questions. Finally, there is a quick look at designing the physical space. Each of these elements is critical. The core idea is that without a shift in trust, social capital, belonging, relatedness, call it what you wish, our capacity to solve problems, organize work effectively, or end the suffering around us is greatly diminished. Our efforts to discover and implement new programs, pilots, and social innovations will make little difference in a context of scarcity and wide relational disparities. This is true regardless of loving and charitable instincts. A shift in social capital occurs when we decide that the real transformation is having citizens, strangers up to now, sitting in circles, learning to trust each other, and deciding how to make a place better. To support you in this effort, I have extracted a string of sentences that I think capture its essence, in hopes that some of them will inspire your work to create a world of your own choosing. Overall Premise Build social capital by converting the isolation within our communities into connectedness and caring for the whole. Shift our conversations from the problems of community to the possibility of community. Bring together people not used to being together into conversations they are not used to having. Commit to creating a future distinct from the past, one that cares for common good. Operating Guidelines Social capital is created one room at a time, the one we are in at the moment. It is formed out of the questions, whom do we want in the room, and what is the new conversation that we want to occur? The key to a new future is to focus on gifts, on associational life, and on the insight that all transformation occurs through language. Each step has to embody a quality of aliveness, and strategy evolves in an organic way. The essence of creating an alternative future comes from citizen-to-citizen -citizen engagement that constantly focuses on the well-being of the whole. We have all the capacity, expertise, and financial resources that an alternative future requires. The small group is the unit of transformation and the container for the experience of belonging. The Context for a Restorative Community The existing community context is one that markets fear, assigns fault, and worships self-interest. This context supports the belief that the future will be improved with new laws, more oversight, and stronger leadership. The new context, the context that restores community, is one of possibility, generosity, and gifts, rather than one of fear, mistakes, and more problem-solving. Communities are human systems given form by conversations that build relatedness. The conversations that build relatedness most often occur through associational life, where citizens are unpaid and show up by choice, rather than in large systems where professionals are paid and show up by contractual agreement. The future hinges on the accountability that citizens choose and their willingness to connect with each other around promises they make to each other. Citizens have the capacity to own and exercise power 
rather than defer or delegate it to others. The inversion of cause and accountability. We reclaim our citizenship when we invert what is cause and what is effect. Citizens create leaders, children create parents, and the audience creates the performance. This inversion may not be the whole truth, but it is useful. The inversion creates conditions in which we can shift from a place of fear and fault to one of gifts, generosity, and commitment. We shift from a bet on law and oversight to one on social capital and chosen accountability, from retributive to restorative justice, from the corporation and systems as central to associational life as central. We shift from a focus on leaders to a focus on citizens, from a focus on problems to one of possibility. Leadership and Transformation Leadership that engages citizens is a capacity that exists in all human beings. It is infinitely and universally available. Transformation occurs when leaders focus on the structure of how we gather and the context in which the gatherings take place. Leadership is convening and held to three tasks. Shift the context within which people gather. Name the debate through powerful questions. Listen rather than advocate, defend, or provide answers. The power of the small group. Each gathering needs to become an example of the future we want to create. The small group is the unit of transformation. Large-scale transformation occurs when enough small groups shift in harmony toward the larger change. Small groups have the most leverage when they meet as part of a larger gathering. The small group produces power when diversity of thinking and dissent are given space. Commitments are made without barter, and the gifts of each person and our community are acknowledged and valued. Questions are more transforming than answers. The skill is getting the questions right. The traditional conversations that seek to explain, study, analyze, define tools, and express the desire to change others are interesting but not powerful. Questions open the door to the future and are more powerful than answers in that they demand engagement. Engagement in the right questions is what creates accountability. How we frame the questions is decisive. They need to be ambiguous, personal, and stressful. Introduce the questions by defining the distinction the question addresses, namely, what is different and unique about this conversation. We need to inoculate people against advice and help. Advice is replaced by curiosity. The invitation. Invite people who are not used to being together. The elements of a powerful invitation. Name the possibility about which we are convening. Specify what is required of each citizen should they choose to attend. Make the invitation as personal as possible. Be clear that a refusal carries no cost. The questions. The five conversations for structuring belonging are possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. Since all the conversations lead to the others, sequence is not that critical. Create conversations in ascending order of difficulty, with possibility generally an early conversation 
and gifts typically one of the more difficult. There are three elements of a question. The distinction that underlies the question, an admonition against advice and help, and in favor of curiosity. The question itself stated precisely. The possibility of conversation. The distinction between possibility and problem solving. Possibility is a future beyond reach. The possibility conversation works on us and evolves from a discussion of personal crossroads. It takes the form of a declaration, best made publicly. The questions. What are the crossroads you are faced with at this point in time? What declaration of possibility can you make that has the power to transform the community and inspire you? The ownership conversation. It asks citizens to act as if they are creating what exists in the world. The distinction is between ownership and blame. Ownership is the decision to acknowledge our guilt. The questions. For an event or project, how valuable an experience or project or community do you plan for this to be? How much risk are you willing to take? How participative do you plan to be? To what extent are you invested in the well-being of the whole? The all-purpose ownership question. What have I done to contribute to the very thing I complain about or want to change? The questions that can complete our story and remove its limiting quality. What is the story about this community or organization that you hear yourself most often telling? The one you are wedded to and maybe even take your identity from? What are the payoffs you receive from holding on to this story? What is your attachment to this story costing you? The Descent Conversation The Descent Conversation creates an opening for commitment. When dissent is expressed, just listen. Don't solve it, defend against it, or explain anything. The primary distinction is between dissent and lip service. A second distinction is between dissent and denial, rebellion, or resignation. The questions. What doubts and reservations do you have? What is the no or refusal that you keep postponing? What have you said yes to that you no longer really mean? What is a commitment or decision that you have changed your mind about? What forgiveness are you withholding? What resentment do you hold that no one knows about? The Commitment Conversation The Commitment Conversation is a promise with no expectation of return. Commitment is distinguished from barter. The enemy of commitment is lip service, not dissent or opposition. The commitments that count the most are the ones made to peers, other citizens. We have to explicitly provide support for citizens to declare that there is no promise they are willing to make at this time. Refusal to promise does not cost us our membership or seat at the table. We only lose our seat when we do not honor our word. Commitment embraces two kinds of promises. Promises about my behavior and actions with others. Promises about results and outcomes that occur in the world. To pass and make no commitment carries no cost or loss of membership. The questions. What promises am I willing to make? What measures have meaning to me?
What price am I willing to pay? What is the cost to others for me to keep my commitments or to fail in my commitments? What is the promise I'm willing to make that constitutes a risk or major shift for me? What is the promise I am postponing? What is the promise or commitment I am unwilling to make? The Gifts Conversation The leadership and citizen task is to bring the gifts of those on the margin into the center. The distinction is between gifts and deficiencies or needs. We are not defined by deficiencies or what is missing. We are defined by our gifts and what is present. We choose our destiny when we have the courage to acknowledge our own gifts and choose to bring them into the world. It is the conversation of fate into destiny. A gift is not a gift until it is offered. The questions. What is the gift you currently hold in exile? What is it about you that no one knows about? What are you grateful for that has gone unspoken? What is the positive feedback you receive that still surprises you? What is the gift you have that you do not fully acknowledge? What gift have you received from another in this room? What has someone in your small group done today that has touched you or moved you or been of value to you? Or, in what way did a particular person engage you in a way that had meaning? What have others in this room done in this gathering that has touched you? The Heart of the Six Conversations The heart of the conversations emerging from all of these questions is to create a sense of belonging with others and also a sense of accountability for oneself and care for the commons. Here is a summary of the core questions associated with each conversation. What is the choice you made by being here? Invitation. How much risk do you plan to take? And how participative do you plan to be in this gathering or project? Ownership. What are the crossroads you, we, are at that are appropriate to the purpose of the gathering? Possibilities. What declarations are you prepared to make about the possibilities for the future? Possibilities. To what extent do you see yourself as cause of the problem you are trying to fix? Ownership. What is the story you hold about this community or this issue, and what are the payoffs and costs of this story? Ownership. What are your doubts and reservations? Dissent. What is the yes you no longer mean? Dissent. What promises are you willing to make to your peers? Commitment. What gifts have you received from each other? Gifts. The important thing about these questions for the possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts conversations is that they name the agenda that creates space for an alternative future. The power is in the asking, not in the answers. Space that supports belonging. Physical space is more decisive in creating community than we realize. Most meeting spaces are designed for control, negotiation, and persuasion. We always have a choice about how we rearrange and occupy whatever room we are handed. Community is built when we sit in circles, when there are windows and the walls have signs of life, when every voice can be equally heard and amplified, 
when we are all on one level and the chairs have wheels and swivel. When we have an opportunity to design new space, we need the following. Reception areas that tell us we are in the right place and are welcome. Hallways wide enough for intimate seating and casual contact. Eating spaces that refresh us and encourage relatedness. Rooms designed with nature, art, conviviality, and citizen-to-citizen interaction in mind. Large community spaces that have the qualities of communal intimacy. The design process itself needs to be an example of the future we are intending to create. Authentic citizen and employee engagement is as important as good design expertise. Role Models and Resources We all need examples of where community is being created. Many of the people and institutions that I am familiar with were listed in the original edition of this book. Rather than including the list in this printing, I have chosen to place it on the Abundant Community website, AbundantCommunity.com. There you will find citizens who are bringing the structures of belonging into their communities. This is simply a small personal listing of what actually are tens of thousands of people who build community, not just because it is their job, but because of who they are. Please go to the Abundant Community website to see these many examples and continue to build your own network of local people changing the world. This has been Community, The Structure of Belonging, Second Edition. Written by Peter Block. Narrated by Tamberla Perry. Produced by Alex Hyde-White at Punch Audio. Copyright 2018 by Peter Block. Production copyright 2018 by Barrett Culler Publishers. Thank you for listening. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.